Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and to insight, you are my relative. They will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. At the window of my house, I looked through the lattice. I saw Mother Simple and noticed among the young men a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home, now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. She took hold of him and kissed him, and with a brazen face she said, Today I fulfilled my vows, and I have food for my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you, I looked for you, and have found you. I have covered my bed with coloured linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home till full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver. Like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many of the victims she has brought down, her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. Uh, good morning, or afternoon, morning. It's still morning for now. Um, my name's Andy, and I'll be speaking to you on this very, uh, I guess, poignant, important topic of porn. Uh, but let me give you a backstory. Uh, when I was, I don't know, seven or eight, my sister uh, was babysitting me, looking after me. She's quite a lot older. We went out to get some lunch, and she knew that I was a very deprived child. Um, so uh, I wasn't allowed sweets back then by my mother, but my sister sneakily bought me a Smarties cookie uh, and said, you can have this after your lunch. So we went into the kitchen, she gave me my lunch, we had the Smarties cookie to the side, and she said, you are not allowed to touch the cookie until you've finished your lunch. And then she left the room. I looked over at the cookie, and it looked like there was a little bit of cookie sticking over the edge, like sort of it was round, but there was a slight extra bit. So I thought, well, I could have that. So I ate that bit. 
The issue was that took off a bit too much, and then it was obvious that there was a gap. So then I had to nibble round to try and even up that bit. But as I nibbled round, there was a smarty in the way. So I got to the smarty, but now the smarty is sticking out. So I have to snap off the smarty so that it's not obvious. So I snap off the smarty, but the smarty snaps off a large chunk of the cookie. So then I have to go proper excavation work to try and eat round to make this a smooth circle again. Now, at what point do you give up on this process? I gave up on this process when there was one smarty left. And I put it next to my lunch and thought, maybe my sister won't notice. <laughs> Moral of the story, I've never had great self-control. Now, that wasn't so much of a problem with a Smarties cookie. It became a problem when I was introduced to pornography. So I'll be sharing my story in four parts today. And I believe that this topic is something that it's important to talk about frankly, but not crudely. So I'm going to try my best not to speak in any explicit way uh, or any way that's unhelpful, but I will be using certain words because they're the best words to use to describe the topic. Um, uh, so four sort of sections to this talk. Why did I start? Why did I carry on? Why couldn't I stop? And then how do I stop? That first one, how, uh, why did I start? Well, my story is similar to some, different to others. I was in primary school. I was in the uh, IT lab at school with the computers. I received a spam email. And I opened that email completely unwittingly, innocently, didn't know what was going to be in it. And an extremely explicit por uh, pornographic image popped up. My teacher saw it very quickly, told me to delete the email, and it was gone. Out of sight, out of mind. But it was still up here in my mind as a very young, prepubescent boy. Now, that kind of was in the past then. I, I moved on. I carried on with my life as normal. But I still had a prevailing memory of the thrill I got when I saw that image. And I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what to do with that. But I then did start to seek out other images to look at. Now, in the early years, I wasn't looking at anything on certain websites. I was never Googling the term porn or anything like that. I'd be looking in magazines or catalogs, clothing magazines, those kinds of things. I'd be remembering images that I'd seen in adverts. There were TV programs that I could think of and memorize, these kinds of things. And all of that flooded my mind and caused me to lust. And that was from a very early age. And then things started to ramp up, I guess, in my teenage years. But why I'm saying this, there's two points to this, why I'm starting here, is you never know if you're a parent or if you're trying to care or disciple children or whatever it is, even in a church setting where we want to be accountable for one another as a family, we never know how young people are going to be exposed to this stuff. We don't have a clue. Satan is not afraid to prey on naive, innocent little children. He loves it. The world loves to feed naive, young, innocent little children with the things that will set them off, that will get their minds, will trap them eventually. And that's what Satan did for me. And uh, it's what others he might do for others. So the reason I'm saying that is I think in some fashion, and I'm still to wrestle this, and my children are too young at the moment, but... I think 
children, young children, need to have an outlet to be able to talk about this stuff when they see it or when they come across it, because it's going to be younger than you would like it to be. And so the conversation has to be at least open. There needs to be an open door of trust that they know that they could come to uh, an adult uh, that they respect, a parent probably, that they could share with and they won't get condemned or told off or anything like that, but it will be an open and honest conversation because if we can have that, we can take steps forward. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, as I said, the first image for me was explicitly pornographic, but after that, it definitely wasn't. It was stuff that was very normal, very normal in society. Like Howard mentioned last week, it was images in the side of uh, shop windows. Um, it was adverts. If you get the tube at the moment, no one is being helped by the explicit, sort of, I would say, relatively pornographic adverts that are on the billboards around. And why I'm saying this is because I think porn can't be simplified down to specifics Porn is anything that causes you to lust. It's very personal. Porn is anything that causes you to lust. And therefore, we shouldn't hide away and say, oh, I don't have a problem with this because I don't go on certain websites. No, no, no. If there are certain things that are causing you to lust and you are purposefully engaging with them, then you do have something to grapple with and work with. You've got a problem of some kind that you need to work through. Okay. So that's why I started, but why did I carry on? Why did I carry on watching stuff and it got further and further along? Well, if you'd asked me back then as a teenager or as a young adult in my early 20s, why was I watching this stuff? I would have told you, well, it's natural. This is just what boys do. Uh, it's a necessary relief. I need to get this out of my system. I've got hormones, I've got feelings. I need to have a sense of release. It's, biological, it's a biological necessity. I would have said that to you. And that was largely the prevailing attitude around me, that that was generally uh, why boys and girls do this. Some of them need to. More boys than girls, apparently, but an increasing number of women as well. They need to do this. It's just in us. Some people naturally need to do this. Well. That was convincing at the time, but having reflected on it, thought about it, and tried to give it up for many years, I realized that actually it was far more complex than that. There is no simplistic answer to the question, why does someone watch porn? For me, going through the different seasons of my life, it provided various different things for me, it provided entertainment. At times, I was a relatively lonely, bored child who needed some entertainment. It was my own pleasurable fantasy land where I could click and get the next hit and the next hit. It was fun. There was enjoyment to it, and it provided me with a whole load of entertainment. There was even the hidden secrecy of it, which adds another weird kind of uh, entertainment factor. It was also, and I think often this can be underplayed, it was also very educational for me. So, uh, I underestimated the power, the peer pressure of being a young boy, knowing that he's going to grow up and maybe, hopefully, sleep with, sleep with a woman in the future. I didn't have a clue what to do, and I didn't, I didn't want to be embarrassed. I didn't want to be embarrassed in front of my school friends when they were talking about certain stuff, and I didn't know what they were talking about. And I definitely didn't want to be embarrassed when I got into a bedroom with a girl and didn't know what to do. So there was a huge factor of education for me that I thought this was really important. 
porn, people suggest, is actually the biggest sexual education ed educator for the majority of people, especially young people nowadays. It is the thing that's teaching them how to interact with people of the opposite sex or the same sex. And it is teaching them horrendous things, awful things about how to treat others. But it is the biggest educator. So again, I don't know how at the moment, but that kind of education needs to be provided in some fashion in a better way, much better way. It entertained me, it educated me, it also empowered me. I was, you can't imagine it, an awkward child and uh, didn't have great social skills and didn't really interact with uh, many guys or girls and I didn't really know how to interact in that way. I was, I was a bit scared in the world. The world involved risk, it involved social pressure. My porn world was completely under my control. I could get in the bedroom, I was in charge of everything. I could make women do exactly what I wanted them to do for me at any point. That was the situation. I was empowered. I was completely in charge. And then it came out of a sense of entitlement. When life is tough, when I need a stress relief, I've had a tough week, I deserve this. I've done well, I need to reward myself. Or I don't know, if you're a Christian and you're holding on to the fact that you're remaining celibate until marriage, that you're not going to sleep with anyone until you get married, that's brilliant. So I will just enable myself to get there by watching porn and masturbating, because that will help me get there. That's almost a reward for my great righteousness in remaining celibate. That was coming into my mind when I became a Christian. So again, the reason I'm laying out these various different aspects of why I carried on watching it is because it's not simplistic. There is no basic answer to this. You can't just tick a, tick a box and say, this is why people watch porn. It's so multifaceted. And one of my biggest problems I realized when I tried to give it all up was I was treating it as a singular problem. I had a porn problem, I thought. But that wasn't the case. Porn was not my problem. Porn was my solution. This came to me actually, sadly, later on in life. But this talk, if you're taking notes or want to take a photo of this, this talk is a very good one to listen to of a guy who had a sexual addiction and uh, talks about it very frankly. And the book that he wrote is very helpful as well. Um, I realize on this topic, you probably don't want to be the person pulling out your phone and photographing, but you, you can talk to me afterwards about it. But this catchphrase, I think, is helpful. Keep this in your mind. Porn is probably not your problem. It's probably your solution to a whole load of other things in your life. This is also the reason, as a side note, why marriage doesn't solve the porn problem. Some guys are thinking, well, I'm just watching this, but it doesn't really matter because when I get married, it'll all be gone. I'll be able to have sex, and I won't have to worry about porn anymore. But it's not as simple as that. It doesn't just fill that gap in your life. It fills many other gaps that marriage actually sometimes doesn't fill. Marriage doesn't solve those things, and therefore many guys and girls, I imagine, do actually carry their porn problem into marriage. There's normally a honeymoon period uh, after they get married of not having watched it for a while, but then it creeps back in. And that's because, again, it is not your problem, it is your solution. Marriage doesn't solve the problems that you have. Basic question, if you're in the room, or at home, or watching this later, and you're starting to process this, what are the problems that porn is currently solving for you? 
Then moving on to the question, why couldn't I stop? Why did I just carry on and carry on and carry on? It went on for over 10 years, I think. There was this catch-22 situation. It's the, probably the most like salt water of all the sins. The more you drink it, the more you need it. The more porn you watch, the more porn you need. And it's a cycle. And I'll get into why that's the case. First of all, I believe this was the case because I'd trained myself. Um, does anyone remember from your science days at school? You're all looking a bit gloomy at the moment, so just raise of hands. Uh, can you remember Pavlov's dogs? Anyone? Yeah, cool. Look at you, educated bunch. Um, Pavlov with his dogs. Uh, he wanted to see whether he could take two disconnected things and connect them together and train a dog. Uh, so he gave the dog meat powder, so it started salivating, and as soon as he did, he rang a bell. And he did that multiple times. Now, normally, if you ring a bell and there's a dog around, I don't know how the dog would react. It might jump, it might run away. But he was giving the meat powder, ringing the bell. So over time, as he did this more and more, the dog starts to associate the bell with food is arriving. And then so even if you just ring the bell, the dog will salivate and it will get ready to eat food. It feels that it needs food because you're ringing a bell. Now, go backwards a few months, that bell did not cause that reaction in the dog, but now it does. It, you can train yourself. I discovered this to my own detriment at university. Growing up, my, <laughs> this sounds graphic, but it's not, my toilet and my sink were in the same room. That's relatively normal. And so I, in the evening, I would brush my teeth before going to bed, and then I would go to the toilet. And that was just normal for me. Until I got to university halls of residence, where I would brush my teeth in my room because I had a sink, and then suddenly, desperately need to rush down the hallway to go to the toilet. I didn't realize that I trained myself. I trained myself to attach those two disconnected things together. And I'd done the same with pornography. Whenever I was alone, I felt like I needed to watch porn. Whenever I was feeling depressed, I felt like I needed to watch porn. I'd, I'd attach those two things together. But what's the other way that you can train a dog to do whatever you want it to do, even if it's a bit unnatural? You can give it rewards, can't you? You can give a dog rewards, and you can get them to jump through any kind of hoop or climb upstairs or walk on its back two feet, anything. Give it sufficient rewards. Now, I don't think God has given us anything more powerful than the orgasm as a feeling of reward in some sense. It's an amazing gift to human beings to give us the experience of an orgasm, which should be a major part of marriage. But detach it outside, and it just becomes the most powerful reward to train yourself to do certain behaviors. So I had attached these two different things. I'd attached various different things to needing to watch porn. And then if I would masturbate and have an orgasm, then it would become even more attached together because the reward is so high. So I train myself. So just a reflection for you to think about. Whenever I am dot, 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 I feel like I have to dot, dot, dot. What would it be for you? As I said, for me, it was whenever I am alone, I feel, and this was interesting for me, actually, because at the age of 14, put me alone in a room, and I was relatively imaginative. I could come up with all sorts of creative ways to entertain myself, play with the, the certain things, be creative, that kind of thing. By the age of 16, genuinely, put me in a room on my own, the only thing I thought I could do was to find some porn, watch it, and then masturbate. I'd so attached these things together. 
I'd so trained myself. What is it for you? The second reason I think we're, we become so embroiled in this, controlled by it, is because we're controlled. Why, why couldn't I stop? Well, I was controlled. And this is where the scientific research is very, very strong, as you can see on this, uh, this quote. Pornography is a type of polydrug that triggers both types of addictive chemical, uh, brain chemicals in one punch. It not only acts like cocaine, it also acts like heroin, uh, enhancing its addictive propensity. This thing is very addictive. I don't know the ins and outs of addiction. I'm not an expert in that area. But I know that this thing causes obsession, at least. And we become very, very controlled by it because it's acting on the parts of our brain that even the best drugs out there can't tackle both of those. And then add to it this. There's a new awareness around the world at the moment. If you watch Netflix, there's a documentary called The Social Dilemma, um, which is interesting. And it's just talking about the power of the Silicon Valley geniuses targeting our brain stems. There's people all around the world who are very, very good at targeting your brain stem to get you to keep doing the things that they want you to do online. They're brilliant at it. They're far more intelligent than anyone in this room, I imagine. And they are doing this. They are paid a lot of money to target your brainstem, the most primal part of you, to get your attention. That's all they want, your attention. They want you to stay on websites. They want to draw you along certain pathways. So they have created pathways for you online that you don't even know that you're going to be walking along. And then they will lure you along those brilliantly. And you've got this extra special powerful drug on top to guide you along those. Not only that, but as you do this more and more, you will create new pathways in your own brain that allow for greater and greater numbers of cars, traffic, vehicles going down it. This is why you feel like you need more and more of this stuff. And it will allow for bigger vehicles. If you've cut a wider path, bigger vehicles can come through. This is why you feel like you need to go up and up in terms of what you're watching, what you're engaging with. So. We become controlled. We've not only trained ourselves, but we are controlled by those around us in order to keep doing this stuff. Then thirdly, I, I felt I was being changed. And this, for me, probably was the most compelling element of this. Remember, the reason I was engaging with porn was to try and be a better person, to try and get a better life. I wanted to be more entertained, more empowered. I felt like I was entitled and wanted to be more educated. I thought this would make me, subconsciously, a better person. That's why I'm engaging with it. The irony is, it was taking me in exactly the opposite direction. Just think about this. If you practice anything enough, you will get better at it, won't you? Spend your free time practicing anything, you'll get better at it. So what was I getting better at as I dedicated, devoted, maybe an hour and a half, most evenings, or even weekly, that's quite a lot of time. Going to the gym for two hours a week is even quite a lot of training. So even that small amount of time per week uh, builds up. So what was I getting better at? Well, personally, I was getting better at hiding from others. I was getting really good at deceiving. I was becoming very adept at living a two-faced life, where I could completely pretend like I was one person, and actually I was another person in the bedroom. I was. I became, I'll boast a little bit, I became an expert keeping secrets from people. Um, I was really good at treating women as objects rather than subjects. 
because every single evening I would be treating them as objects that I could essentially do whatever I wanted to with. I was getting very good at that. I was then getting better, I guess, when I went outside of my bedroom, at keeping relationships a bit meaningless and shallow. Um, because obviously I don't want to make really good friends because then they'll find out about this part of my life or that will become awkward at least. So let's keep things meaningless and shallow in my relationships. And I was probably a world expert at self-gratifying because all of this was about self-satisfaction. Whereas sex, as God has designed it, is all about teaching us how to be self-giving. This version of sex was all about self-gratification. So I was becoming really good at that. Socially, I was definitely becoming less caring or concerned about injustice. Because if we're honest, out of 10 photos that you look at on a website or 10 videos, I don't know the stats, but I don't imagine that you're going and researching the actors and finding out whether they're well paid or how good their lives are and uh, how well they're treated in the workplace. I imagine you're just engaging with it at surface level. Um, it'd be well, um, so I was becoming very, very good at becoming uncaring, totally not caring about whether the videos or photos I was watching were examples of sexual abuse or rape um, or mistreatment, um, all these kinds of things. Then I was getting very good at abdicating responsibility because, hey, I'm meant to take responsibility for myself and my own actions and for the welfare of others. That in includes, if I see something pop up, not clicking on it, not giving it the attention it needs, therefore not increasing its advertising capacity, etc., etc. But actually, I was abdicating that responsibility, and I was doing it night after night after night. I was getting very good at that. You can see how all of these things feed into your other part of your life. So when we say porn is just one problem in my life, don't kid yourself. This, this features, it makes you very good at abdicating responsibility in all the areas of your life, because you're training really hard at it, so keep going. Um, physiologically, I was increasing my chances of depression, anxiety, stress. Uh, all the research shows us that. Less exercise, fewer healthy habits. And theologically, um, I was getting better at ignoring the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about the idea of grieving the Holy Spirit in this series. Um, ignoring when the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Well, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is there on your shoulder trying to lead you into freedom. And I believe that every time I was going to watch something like this, the Holy Spirit was in some sense whispering, speaking to me. And I got very adept at saying, no, don't worry, I'm, I've got this, thanks, ignoring him and carrying on. And again, how's that going to affect the rest of your life? So while porn was offering me the better life, it was actually leading me down the hellish path. And I was trapped. This is the fourth point, why I couldn't stop. I was trapped. I think this is Satan's cleverest trick, if I give him any credit. Um, if you can convince someone that they're so animalistic, they're so trapped in a cage, that they might as well just carry on running on the wheel, then you've got them. You've absolutely got them trapped. If you can convince someone that they're trapped in the porn cycle, that they cannot get out of it, then you've got them. And that was what I was. It's the shame-pride cycle, I call it. You've got shame is the first part, the first response. You feel like you've done something less than yourself. You've belittled yourself. You've degraded yourself by this action. You don't want someone walking in and finding you doing this. It's less than human. 
So you're feeling shame. And actually, I would suggest, maybe I'm just using the wrong word, but I think this is a, a good reaction. I think this is inbuilt. I think the Holy Spirit wires us, teaches us to respond like this because we're created as God's own image. We're not created to act like this. So we're going to feel a response, gut-level response to this, given by the Spirit. And I think that that is the right response. But then what completes the cycle is pride. I've, I've done something that's so degrading, it's so less than human, it's so less than me, that I should not tell anyone about this because they will think less of me. I should not speak about this. I should not open up about this because what will people think of me? They've got a good image of me. This would ruin that. It's a shame-pride cycle. And the more and more you run round the hamster wheel, the more and more you feel trapped on it. So how do you stop? Or how do I stop? And I've put it like this, phrased it like this on purpose. How do I stop? If we could go to the next slide, right? How do I stop? Rather than how did I stop? Because the, I think the misconception that I had back then, and maybe this happens very occasionally for people, but I thought that maybe one prayer would set me free. One sermon would set me, if I can just find the perfect sermon on this online, then I'll be free from this, I'll be able to break it. But I just don't think that's how it works, personally. It's not how did I stop back then, and I was then suddenly had that moment of freedom, and now it's as easy as anything. No, it's how do I stop? How do I stop myself daily? How do I stop myself weekly engaging with this stuff? Now, it, I think... Uh, we want to get it right, though, because I am in a situation now, probably 10 years on, that I genuinely feel freer. I genuinely feel like I can walk the path rel with relative ease at times. Obviously, when I'm stressed or those different triggers, I have to be more aware. But in general life, I'm not as prone to sliding into it. A TV program popped up yesterday that as soon as I noticed that it was getting explicit, I was able to close it down. I wouldn't have been able to do that before, or I wouldn't have felt like I could. So I think you can get to the top of this, uh, this mountain. If you, if you imagine trying to get free while you're in the middle of it is a bit like climbing up this, a sliding rock face. It really feels like every step you take, you slide down again. But you can get to that path at the top. And I think you can walk in that freedom, but it's quite a narrow path. And you have to have the right attitude or else you will find yourself sliding down relatively easily. So I think the first step is not greater self-confidence. I don't think I'm going to say to you, you can do it, you're brilliant. No, no, no. You can do it, but not because you're brilliant. You don't start with pride because that is what's complete in your circle. You start with humility. And you've kind of got two options. You either be humble or you be humbled. I think be humble is being able to admit this to someone. Now, if you're in the middle of this, you have admitted this to God numerous times. And you think it's simply a just you and God situation. But God has put people in your lives. And the big test, this is why the church exists in some fashion, is that you open up to others. And that is the test, I think. And we've put uh, our emails there, Howard, Stephen, Andy, and Gillian. You can message us. You can come to us, speak about this. You could speak to your life group leaders. If I could get one thing from this message, it's not to break you free in an instant, because I don't think we will. 
but I think it might be to encourage you to talk to someone, is to break the cycle. Because either you be humble and you break that cycle of pride and you speak to someone about this, or you be humbled. Because if you're a child of God, I believe that God is good enough to get you free of this, but he might do it in a more uncomfortable way by someone finding out, by someone walking in on you or discovering it or it, uh, messing up certain things. Maybe you'll look at it in the workplace. Some HR will find out and then you'll get in all sorts of complications. God is good enough, a good enough father to get us out of this. But if we're not humble, then we might be humbled. So break your silence, break the cycle, but please do it wisely. And this is just a few pastoral comments. Please break that cycle wisely because we don't want to cause someone else to stumble in this. Um, I would suggest, please, speak to someone of the same sex and probably someone who's slightly more mature in their faith than you. Um, we can, we can cause other people to slide down the cliff face with us if we're, if we're not careful. So please do this wisely if you're going to speak to someone. Um, and to those who are being told, to those who someone trusts you enough to come and open up, just three things. Please be humble. Self-righteousness has no place in this church, we hope. You don't suddenly go, oh, I would never do such a thing, or you show them some sort of discontent or whatever. Please be humble in how you receive what they're saying to you, even if it's very shocking. Please be honest. If you don't think you can handle this, don't fall into some sort of obligation. Don't get trapped by them. Sometimes that, that partnership, hey, I'm telling you this, but you mustn't ever tell anyone else, and uh, we're in this together, that can trap you all too quickly. Please be honest about this. You, you need to walk wisely yourself. You shouldn't fall into the same sin. And be helpful. Personally, I don't, help, I don't think it's helpful to agree to be someone's confession booth where they do it, then a week later they feel a bit remorse, they text you and say, I did it again, and you go, oh, okay, try not to do it again, and then you carry on. You're not a confession booth. You need to be, if you're going to do this with them, if you're honest enough and you say, yeah, I can help, then you need to really be helpful in some sense, it's a long-term commitment to helping people through this. That's why I'd suggest speak to us. We've got the time. Uh, we work in a church. We don't do anything else. Um, right, once you're... <laughs> the bits I'm not paid for to speak, to say. Um, once you've broken the cycle, then you take steps. Now, this isn't a step-step uh, program where it's one, two, three, you're free. No, it's one, two, one, two... One, two, one, two. It's about walking in the fear of the Lord and walking in love. I think those are two helpful steps. There's many other things that would help you as well. Um, I'm not going to actually read the story of the woman at the well. No, I will. Have I got time? Yeah, can I? All right, let's go for it. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan women said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews that are not associated with Samaritans? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them 
will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. She'd have loved the conversation to have stopped there. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. That first step, step one, walk in the fear of the Lord. Think about what's going through her head when he says that comment. Yeah, I know, you've had five husbands and the current one isn't your husband. She's having flashbacks to all the conversation that they've just had and then everything else. What else does he know? If he knows that about me, this man is a prophet of God. This man knows every sordid detail about my life. He knows every moment of betrayal, every moment of angst. He knows the, uh, what happens not just out here around this well, but what happened in the bedrooms. Every dodgy text message I've sent, every time I've let someone down or lied or been uh, dishonest. He knows all of my troubling and worrying and fear. He knows why I feel like I've given up at this point in my life. He knows everything about me. I imagine she felt a little bit like when my sister walked in and saw that one little smarty next to my lunch. The fear of God. <laughs> that moment when you're like, uh-oh, I'm totally exposed. This is it. The game's up. There's nowhere to run and hide. Now, in the moment when you experience the fear of God, you will know whether it's a righteous, good fear of God versus a sort of corrupt fear of God if you just go silent. Often, when people are trying to tackle porn, they will have a sense of grief. There will be tears. There might be real sense of urgency and sadness. But immediately, they try and come up with explanations, excuses, and commitments to do better in the future. And I'd suggest, no, no, no. The fear of God is more about waiting to see how he responds, not how you're going to respond. When everything's been exposed, when the smarties there on the table and everyone can see it, don't start trying to come up with some silly excuses or how you're going to do better when you get another smartie in the future. Just wait to see how they respond. And how Jesus responds melts her heart. And this is step two, walk in the love of God. And this is where secular advice really falls short because the world out there, Russell Brand is one of the leading uh, advocates of this, want you to get free of porn because it's doing all sorts of damage to your life. And uh, it's good, it's a good cause, but they really lack this love of God as the fuel. I managed to stop looking at porn for two months uh, in my early 20s because I went to the Amazon rainforest for two months. And there was no access to the internet or any images, and I was camping in the same room as a whole load of other people. That did teach me a necessary lesson, that it's possible to stop. And at that point, I genuinely didn't believe that it was possible to stop biologically for two days. So it taught me an important lesson. Two months, I could physically stop. But I got back, I slid back into it. Why? Because this second step wasn't there. The love of God. Notice he doesn't offer her an alternative solution. He doesn't say, hey, I could give you a bunch of other things. No, he, what he's offering her is life. And life, he knows, is what she's seeking after. 
She's going after water. He offers better water. It's the same thing, but better. His solution to her is the better version of what she's currently looking for. And that's so important that when we're going towards porn, you need to be honest. You are, even if you don't know it, deep down looking for some sort of intimacy and love. But it's sucking you dry. And it's this moment. Wait till Jesus responds. The smarties there on the table. How will the God of the universe, who knows everything about you, respond? Well, he doesn't offer her retribution, condemnation. He offers her salvation. He offers her the solution. He offers her life. That's the love of God being manifest in that moment. And that will cause her to fall more in love with him than her husband problem. Husbands were not her problem. Husbands were her solution. Porn is not your problem. It's your solution. But if you experience the love of God, you will fall more in love with him. And therefore, you will fall less in love with this. And that is what will take you on the right path away from porn. I've used this illustration before. But how do you get a, do a bone out of a dog's mouth? You don't just pull it harder because it will bite down harder. You offer it something better. You offer it a leg of lamb, and immediately it will drop the bone because there's more life in the leg of lamb. You need to be offered something better by Jesus, and that comes through discipleship. My personal preference is not so much accountability partners, but discipleship partners. Because discipleship partners focus on the whole of your life. Accountability is just about this one problem that you've got. If you can walk together, if we can walk together as a church, discipling one another, we will get free of this together because we will be able to experience the love of God more and more in our midst. So if the bank come up, that's all I'm going to leave you with. This is what Jesus invited her to do, was to experience life, life in its fullness. That's what Jesus is inviting you to do. Right now, even if this is washed over your head because you don't think that you've got an issue with this thing, hopefully something has resonated, but this can resonate. Jesus now wants you to experience more life out of his loving heart for you. So as we worship in response, that's what we can respond to, his incredible love. She ran back and told everyone, what can you do? You can sing, or mine, sing under your breath. Father, Thank you that you, the source of life, the father of lights, helps us with this situation, this issue. Such a demeaning, degrading, multifaceted thing that we all do, or many people do, in the quiet and privacy of our rooms, thinking it has no other implications, Lord. And yet it's affected so many people, Lord. You would send your son into that situation as well to give freedom and to give life, to have the life sucked out of him so that we would no longer have the life sucked out of us by this evil, but actually have life poured into us by your spirit. Lord, I now pray simply for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to be with us all now. Amen. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. 
If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.